Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the possibility of a hung parliament at the upcoming New South Wales state election and the key issues dominating the campaign. My guest today is Peter Chen. Peter is a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney. Hello, Peter. Hi, it's really nice to be here. The media always loves to talk about hung parliaments, right? It's always a popular uh, conversation topic, the potential of chaos, the potential of a different result. Um, But the interest in it is usually a bit more than the actual chances it might happen, uh, where no major party wins a majority in the lower house. But this upcoming New South Wales state election seems to be a bit of an exception. There's a good chance that both Labor and the Coalition will fall short of a majority. We've got nine crossbenchers who were elected the last election, which is the largest number in many decades. Uh, all nine are running again with a good chance of re-election. And uh, there's a 10th crossbencher, Gareth Ward, running in Kiama, and a number of other credible independents running in other seats. Uh, the coalition has lost their majority since the last election, and thus they will need to pick up seats to win a majority back. Labor needs to pick up nine seats for a majority. The current polls suggest the clear swing to Labor, but it may not be enough to pick up those nine seats, leaving any potential government reliant on the crossbench to make up the numbers. Peter, how do you rate the chances of a hung parliament in this election? Well, actually, I think they've been increasing as the election's gone on. I didn't uh, I didn't really credit that much uh, early on. And you are right when you say that the media does love to talk about uh, hung parliaments. I mean, it's partly about the way in which the media likes to talk about the drama of elections, irregardless of whether there's actually any drama or not in elections. Uh, you know, so much so sometimes you talk about elections, you know, the battle with the blands, right? But uh, this time, actually, yeah, it does look like there is a, a solid possibility that there will be a hung parliament, which will be really interesting. We haven't had one here in New South Wales uh, since uh, uh, 1991, right? Uh, the Griner government, and we thought, think about those three independents who played a really important role in negotiating uh, a kind of uh, supply and support agreement. I think it took them about five weeks to negotiate that, as I recall, um, which kind of shows you that Australians really aren't, you know, very experienced in this, even though... Um, hung parliaments or minority governments are very common around the world. Australia does have this cultural um, attachment to the two-party system, right, and the notion of um, strong majorities. And so, yeah, 1991, 1950, 1920, that's really all we've had at elections, I think, in New South Wales. And so it is going to be really, really interesting, and it does talk to this broader tendency we're seeing in Australia for a breakdown in the two parties to completely dominate the the political system like they did, you know, even a decade ago. So I think it's going to be interesting. Certainly uh, the the government, you know, they're losing a number of key ministers at this election, um, which I think, you know, really does hurt them. So we can think about, obviously, Brad Hazard going and, you know, he was such a face of the government during the pandemic, kind of trusted face kind of guy. Rob Stokes, very competent, you know, infrastructure minister. So I think that uh, also has been a bit of a, uh, a a weakness for the government coming in because they do want to, you know, talk about the kind of consistency, past performance. It's hard to talk about past performance when, you know, you're losing a lot of your ministers. On the other hand, of course, um, they have shaken off a few barnacles going into the election and the biggest one obviously is the kind of walking headline David Elliott. Um, now, um, that doesn't talk to, I guess, the strength of will necessarily of the government to shake that off. He certainly is going because of that redistribution that nixed his seat. Um, but they did put a little effort into making sure that he couldn't grab an upper house seat, right? They, they could have absolutely found somewhere for him if they really wanted to, and they didn't. 
<laughs> it's all right. Why would they? It's a disaster, right? Um, so that's interesting. I guess the, the big question talking about, say, um, the prospect of, you know, a real hung parliament where at the end of the day we spend weeks and weeks and weeks negotiating and stuff like that is can the ALP shake off the car era legacy, right? And I think there's kind of two aspects of that kind of discussion going on. On the one hand, I think that finally um, the kind of uh, corruption cases have worked their way through the judicial and media system. They're still a little bit live, but even four years ago, they were still, you know, relatively common occurrences in the major newspapers. The leadership of the Labor Party has also changed generationally, right? Like those corruption cases have worked through, but also we don't, the party's not led by people who were sitting in parliament with those, like with the Eddie O'Beads and the Ian McDonald's, you know, it is actually a next generation that can kind of give themselves a bit of distance from that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, whether the general public are as aware of that sort of thing as as maybe we are, I think is is a bit of a question mark. But certainly, yeah. So there, there has been enough time. I mean, it's twelve years of of uh, you know of, of the current government. So it's been quite a long time, and it's taken such a long time for those cases to work through. I think the flip side, of course, is that one of the big legacies of the car government was their underinvestment in infrastructure. Um, and uh, there is a question whether the public's kind of forgotten that. Um, certainly, you know, the, the coalition's approach has been to kind of tarmac, tarmac the state from end to end, right, with massive infrastructure expenditure. Um, and one of the things I think is really interesting is I mean, obviously, that's hugely expensive. Um, the amount of money that's been spent on that's been incredible. But also, I do wonder whether people really notice that stuff much after the big kind of opening. And um, I'm out here in Ashfield, and we just had the kind of last part of the West Connects uh, loop open up. And um, yeah, and the construction stopped. You know, and that was about what I felt about it. You know, we can think about that classic kind of um, a hollow men episode where they're talking about doing all the infrastructure in Canberra and the public servants are gushing about how amazing it is because you won't see it. It's all underground. It's all buried and stuff like that. Um, is the government going to get a bump on that is a bit of a big question, I think. I managed to avoid accidentally driving onto that new bit of West Connects the other day, which was the first time I successfully did that. The first time I drove on it, I uh, just went straight past the Ashfield exit and just kept going and uh, didn't normally the the freeway just finished there and you just come off. So uh, it was a little bit confusing, actually, but that's been my experience of it coming from slightly further west. Yeah, I tried to head down and uh, and because my uh, I have a cheap phone, it didn't have the satellite for my GPS anymore. And I just shot out somewhere near Canberra, I think what happens. But uh, yeah, no, there is a bit of that. I mean, I think probably... Uh, one of the kind of core aspects of this, of course, is the way in which some of these positives are now slightly negative. And so you have both parties talking about uh, relief to people who are paying a lot in tolls, right? So on the one hand, there's that kind of big investment in infrastructure that's been going on. But on the other hand, now we need to, you know, pick the pockets of the taxpayer to pay subsidies to toll companies uh, to satisfy their kind of deals. And that's obviously a big pressure point, particularly out in, in Western Sydney, where you know, as you know better than I, there's a, a lot of seats up for grabs. There's an element with the Parramatta Light Rail where I am that they're doing a lot of stuff, but right now that means there's just a lot of construction sites around the area. There's a lot of stuff where the tram line being built has kind of short-term costs, and I, I think I think it's worth it in the long run, but, you know, there's businesses and there's people who don't like that there's less parking. You know, there's downsides to all of this. 
upgrades and it's it's not going to be clean. And I think Labor's going to do their best to take advantage of that. Can we just... um So before we go a bit further into these different issues, um, think a little bit about what that hung parliament could look like. Because I think when it comes up, it's going to be partly about the numbers and it's going to partly be about the issues. Because, um, you know, we've got... This is not a situation where there's just going to be one group of people who are going to make the decision. It's actually going to be quite different potentially to 1991 where the story in 1991 was there was this, there was one more conservative crossbencher, Tony Windsor, who uh, kind of later reinvented himself as a bit more of a progressive guy, but was seen as a very conservative independent. And then you had Peter McDonald, John Hatton and Clover Moore, who were the more progressive side of the crossbench. And uh, at first the coalition didn't need them and then eventually they did. Um, this situation right now, there's three greens, two of them, are, I think are pretty safe. The third one maybe could be in play in Balmain. You've got these three ex shooters in the country who we don't know if their seats will go back to the Nats. And then we've got Piper and Greenwich in urban seats and Joe McGurr in Wagga. And then we have all these Teals and we have Michael Regan. So it could be a situation where it could look quite different between whether if one side's really close to a majority or they're both really far away, that we might need to see quite complicated governing arrangements forming. And part of that might be how much do these parties, the major parties, are obviously going to be pushed to change their policies and concede on policy issues, and they're not going to want to do that. They're both not going to want to be seen to do that, but also actually change their policy agenda. And I think the issue where we see the most of that on at the moment is cashless gaming, right? So what do you think is the story there where the coalition has been a bit more aggressive on that issue than Labor, um, but a lot of people on the crossbench who would otherwise be potential allies for the Labor Party in a hung parliament very much do not agree with Labor on its policy on this issue? Yeah, I guess probably what I'd say a couple of things. I think probably I'll just step back one thing and just say I've got a slight uh, conflict of interest when it comes to uh, cashless uh, gaming. A close family member works in that industry. That aside, certainly it is very kind of interesting and we're going to see uh, tonight actually as we're recording, uh, Four Corners has a bit of a special on the influence of clubs in New South Wales and particularly the former uh, gaming minister, Victor Dontello, who's just uh, who's just retiring as we discussed earlier. Uh, is talking about their very strong um, uh, tactics there. So I think broadly what, what we're going to see is it's very possible that there could be a very interesting collection of independents who are former shooters, some teals, the greens in the mix, you know, other independents as well there. Um, and obviously you have some of those people who are continuing on, uh, like Alex in Sydney and stuff like that. So the actual mix, I think, is going to determine what the policy landscape looks like because I can't imagine that anyone's going to be signing a kind of New Zealand-style formal uh, agreement, right? We just don't do that. It's not the kind of practice in Australia. We're much more, uh, we much more prefer this kind of like um, uh, support and supply agreements where the policy landscape remains kind of open for negotiation. The um, the interesting thing, of course, about the cashless gaming uh, card is the way in which uh, the Liberals who, you know, not that long ago were very strongly against this have moved so much in about three years to become so committed to it. And certainly 
Clubs New South Wales who have previously claimed that, um, you know, they did a very, very impressive lobbying and, and power play work around the Gillard administration have been wrong-footed here in New South Wales. And um, obviously New South Wales is a kind of leading state. Um, could uh, put a lie to some of the claims that the cashless gaming card idea, you know, uh, wouldn't work, uh, you know, be problematic with regards to employment and things like that. So I think that is very, very interesting. Um, certainly many of the kind of key independents, uh, with the exception, importantly, of the shooters, uh, the former shooters, have stuck their hands up to say that they are very strongly in support of the cashless gaming card idea. This is going to put a lot of pressure on Labor if they uh, have the prospect of government to abandon their more moderate, we're going to do a trial thing, which was really the death knell of the, the Gillard kind of model as well, you know, this kind of half half measures. Uh, and certainly the, the issue has come to dominate the election campaign in a big way. And I thought it was very interesting that clubs made a very, very poor strategic decision early on with regards to attacking the Premier um, uh, 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 personally uh, with regards to this issue and attempting really to paint him basically as an old school 1960s kind of uh, um, a bit of a prude or a kind of a wowser sort of figure, which I just don't think has a lot of currency in the kind of current day. Now, the Nationals, you know, will support a cashless gaming solution if they can get some money thrown at them. And this is going to be the big kind of issue, because if the Nationals are able to get some money for rural clubs, then every club in New South Wales is going to come for compensation. Uh, and this money is going to start to add up. And that's where the kind of policy negotiation around cashless gaming cards, I think, is going to be quite, quite difficult. But all in all, it looks like, um, as it currently stands, that um, if the government is returned, they've committed themselves very strongly, put a lot of political capital into um, into bringing in the cashless gaming cards and also regulating the capacity for clubs to uh, to engage in political lobbying and stuff like that. Um, the flip side, of course, is if Labor comes in, they're going to be a lot of under a lot of pressure because it doesn't look like they're going to be able to form government in their own right. So they're going to be under a lot of pressure. Um, from anybody really that they're likely to negotiate with to change their policy and basically follow the Liberal Party. I mean, I guess the, the seat that is to watch really in this one for me is the seat of Murray, right, where uh, Helen Dalton has been um, one of those independents who has said that, you know, uh, supporting a, an incoming government will depend on them backing cashless gaming cards. And I know clubs in New South Wales have been running a very intense campaign down there against her. So I think the, the outcome of that seat might tell an incoming government how much power clubs in New South Wales actually still has. Um, given that um, the government government called their bluff a little bit on this one. That is a very interesting state because she's always presented herself as a little bit more progressive than the other ex-shooters um, and could could find herself in an interesting position. I think we could find ourselves in a position where, you know, Butler and, and Donato are kind of dealt out as being a bit too conservative and, and the Greens are sort of dealt out for being too, like they, they don't have as much power because they don't really have the, as much as they said our support for Labor is conditional, they don't really have the agency to go and back the coalition and Labor knows that. But then you have this block in the middle, which at the moment is McGurr and Greenwich and Piper and maybe it's Dalton, who are genuinely the people who have the have the freedom to move or at least the, they can bluff it. Um, 
and that's worth watching. I mean, I thought it was very interesting that um, there's a profile, we're recording this on Monday, there's a profile in the Herald today of Greenwich, which once it gets through all this nonsense about his family being a royal family in Georgia, um, has has some quotes from Clover Moore saying he'd, he'd, he'd want to be careful backing Labor, which I thought was really interesting, both more as the local mayor and someone who's been in this position before, but also a close political ally of Greenwich. You could kind of argue she's the leader of his party, you know. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. She was quoted as saying, oh, Sydney is notionally blue, like it's got a Liberal 2PP, which I've got a blog post up today about that saying, well, I'm not sure that's true. I think that's just that there's a lot of lefty voters who vote for Greenwich and then don't bother preferencing Labor. But um, it's... Um, it's going to be interesting to see where those people play because there's an element, and we'll get into all the other policies in a minute, but there's an element of game theory about this around, I think particularly with Labor and the Greens, I think Labor and the Independents can have a bit more of a civil relationship where they're like, they have um, demarcation, they can let the Independents be strong where they are, and that's not a threat to them. But Labor and the Greens have this confrontational competitive relationship that means the Greens want to demonstrate they can get stuff done and they can push Labor. And Labor wants to demonstrate that they are not going to be pushed by the Greens and that they're the ones that actually get stuff done. You know, so much of this battle that's going on in the inner West is about who can actually get stuff done. Is it better to have someone on the inside in a Labor majority government or is it better to push Labor from outside? And they're going to really care... Part, they're obviously going to care about the actual policy outcomes, but they're all really going to care about who's portrayed as being successful on that stuff. And that's going to create a tension because it won't be a simple matter of them just going, we agree on this policy, let's vote for it. Because it's a, a lot of it's going to be about appearances and uh, perception. And I wonder actually if the Greens have misplayed their hand actually in this election campaign because they've been running a lot of advertising that I've seen about the Greens will do this, the Greens will do that sort of thing, which uh, often seems quite fanciful, um, putting a light rail down Parramatta Road and things like that um, seems unlikely to be realised. I think the window of opportunity for that has kind of been missed. But also the clear messaging is vote for the Greens and help us throw the Liberals out, which is obviously, you know, they're not even, you know, engaging the pretext that they're, they're going to negotiate. Uh, if they're in a kind of kingmaker position. So they've given their hand away on, on that one to some extent. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, the Greens represent an existential threat to Labor on their left wing, right? And, the, you know, they hemorrhage their voters out to them, particularly um, in key inner city seats that they used to own. And Balmain is a really good example of that. The question of Balmain, I think, is a really good example, right? Um, because, obviously, Jamie Parker, who's held that seat for a, a long time, very popular former mayor of Leichhardt, and a character who still kind of feels like the mayor of Leichhardt in the way in which he goes about his um, his local uh, politics and things like that. Um, you know, he is trying to hand over to Kobe Shetty. Um, Kobe Shetty, you know, is a good, solid Greens candidate. Um, but uh, but um, uh, Labor have put up their deputy mayor against him, right? So in a sense, they've kind of put up uh, a kind of Jamie Parker-like figure to run against him. Um Certainly, Labor have sort of said that there are a number of key seats, right, they definitely want to grab if they're going to win government, and Balmain is one of them, Newtown's another one. Balmain is interesting, obviously, because of Jamie um, Parker leaving. Newtown seems fanciful and stuff like that. Also, 
Yeah, they also their candidate, um, you know, is an interesting character, right, and stuff like that. But uh, if you actually go and look on the ALP website, you know, his kind of strongest claim to fame is that he's the president of the local PNC, right, which is actually probably very good training for politics because PNCs are just horrible uh, sort of environments. They're akin to being on your strata committee, right? Um, but, um, but, yeah, isn't like a candidate I would have thought that they would put up if they were like super dead set serious they need to win that seat. Yeah, I mean, it seems unlikely even though they've kind of said it. So in a way, they're, it feels like they're conceding that they're going to be in minority government. And the question then is, is yeah, who are they going to work with? And the exudas seem unlikely. Um, I wonder really what your take is on on the likelihood of Teals getting up. Mm. One last thing on Balmain, and then I'll, I'll get to the Teals. They've got these billboards. Well, they've got at least one billboard that says Vote Greens Risk Parite. They've got leaflets that are, this is the Labor Party, that are saying if you vote one Labor, two Greens, that's a safe vote for a change of government. Voting Greens is risky. I think it's really interesting because it's designed to set Greens people off. Uh, and I think sometimes people look at it and go, oh, this is misinformation about preferencing, but it's actually not about preferencing. It's about saying it's a particular narrow scenario where the Greens are, they need Greens to govern, but they're not enough and they need other people who are more moderate. And those other people who are more moderate may be less likely to back a Labor government if they're reliant on Greens than if they're just their own selves or that those those moderate independents are looking at the two parties and going, which party's got more seats? We'll go with them. So I, that's one. That's what I mean by being one particular hung parliament scenario. Labor could also fall two or three seats short, and that could be one where they're like, okay, we get confidence and supply from the Greens, but then sometimes we want to be more conservative and we'll work with the ex-shooters or we'll work with whatever. Um so that's an interesting one to see because Labor is really playing that lineup, and I, I would like some people were trying to say it's a lie, and I'm like, I don't think it's a lie. I think it's, I think it's they've stripped it of its nuance. You know, they've taken a, a particular narrow scenario and they use the word risk to to kind of play it up, which is very interesting to see how that plays out because a lot of people in the inner West, like if they if the only thing they cared about was electing a Labor government, they'd vote for the Labor Party, right? They care about other things as well, but how much is that the thing that's most important to people? I think that strategy also talks to that kind of notion um, that isn't always true, right? That uh, as it narrows, people then make a more conservative vote decision sort of thing. Uh, and the whole kind of, oh, it's going to be close narrative that's emerging now plays into that sort of thing. So, oh, it's going to be close, so don't risk it. Just go, you know, you do want to change the government, well, vote for the party that's going to change the government. Boom, that sort of thing. And indeed, the Greens have never won seats in New South Wales in an environment where Labor's been competitive, right? Like they won their first seat in 2011 when Labor was devastated and then they won their others in 2015 where Labor was doing a bit better but not really winning. We haven't really seen what it's like in an environment where Labor can win the election. Yeah, I just think the timeline is so short, though. It's, it, I don't know if, if we know that sort of, you know, is actually sure. a kind of uh, heuristic. Uh, but, yeah, no, absolutely right. And uh, certainly the other thing I think that does count against them a little bit, and we'll probably talk about this a little later on, is I just think for the average uh, New South Welshman, right, if you're walking down the street, you're probably barely conscious there's an election on. It just doesn't have really the kind of feel that there's a, a big election going on, even though it actually is quite a big election, I think. Um, the media coverage has been kind of uh, modest. I think, that, you know, the algorithms that the media companies are using to, to ascertain how many people are reading these stories is telling them, 
they actually don't have a huge readership on the New South Wales election. So I think there's also that issue too. And so that would be, for me as a campaigner, something that would encourage me to go simpler. So you asked about teals. I'm sceptical. I think the first thing I would say is it won't be like the federal election. That was a unique set of circumstances. A government that really wasn't well suited to those electorates and didn't really try very hard to win those voters back when that looked like they were losing them. You know, Morrison's strategy was kind of like, well, stuff you then. You know, if you're gone, you're gone. You know, just pack up your stuff and go kind of thing. And what do you know? People packed up their stuff and left. Um, And... That's not the situation. This government is more moderate. They present as more moderate. You know, the kind of, uh, on our last podcast, Michael McGowan was talking about uh, kind of running a parallel campaign of Matt Keane on the North Shore and Dominic Perrottet in Western Sydney. But having said that, one or two may come through, and I don't know which ones. There's a bunch of credible scenarios. It's just we go back to the old traditional theory about independence is they're not a, it's not a wave of you know the federal election was kind of a wave you know you saw the wave hit everywhere from manly all the way up to Karingai and just the wave got a bit smaller and so they didn't win bradfield but it did kind of feel like people voting for a teal party i don't think we'll see that it'll be about the individual electorate the individual independent the individual mp or candidate um, and it's really hard to win that way but it does happen and so i think i'm a little bit intrigued by pitwater and wallandilly uh, the independent in Wallandilly ran last time and came within six points. She's got a lot more money this time. The government's less popular this time. Pitwater, quite a moderate uh, Liberal MP in Rob Stokes, has been replaced by a much more conservative figure. That's interesting too. But I don't think we're going to see a wave. You know, maybe one of them will pop up. That'll be interesting. I'm also really interested in Michael Regan in Wakehurst, who is not a Teal, hasn't identified with the Teals at all, um, but is the mayor of quite a large council leads a political party on the council that has six seats on the council. And um, I'm really interested to see whether he can break through. Judy Hannon in Wanandilly, right? Like that's a 6% swing. She's a former mayor too, right? And, you know, we were chatting a little bit about this before the podcast, just by way of background. One of the kind of structural deficits, I think, in my discipline of political science in Australia, of course, is um, that we've uh, really neglected the study of uh, local uh, politics, uh, particularly, and that kind of feeder, right? You know, that uh, you have that kind of, you know, local politics uh, engagement, the way in which it allows you to kind of build your profile, you get runs on the boards that are often about being able to talk about really delivering things locally. So, I, I mean, I think Wanandilly is the one I'm interested in. Um, I also think Michael Regan's uh, opponent, right, uh, Toby Williams, um, it's interesting if you actually go on the, the Liberal Party website and have a look at it, um, you, you're like, oh, what's this guy's background? What does he What did he do, right? And then you have to kind of, oh, right, he was a political staffer. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of uh, not anything that you can actually find. The place you actually find it most talked about is on the women's agenda. And I think one of the things that I probably would highlight, even though I think I agree with you about um, the Teals this, uh, this cycle here in New South Wales, is that, of course, the teals that we've been, you know, the the, the five teals that we, we're talking about, right, um, which do seem to have a lot of uphill struggle, obviously, um, Pittwater's, what, 22, 22%. They are all women, 
if we think about uh, those kind of beaches areas, the, the Liberal Party put up, what, uh, 10 out of 11 candidates are all men. And one of the things that the Resolve Political Monitor showed us was that, um, particularly when it comes to Dominic Perrottet, is he's massively more popular with men than women. And so it does talk to the Liberal Party's quote-unquote women problem seems to be continuing into this election. I think you're right. I don't think it's actually going to swing it uh, that much. But um, it does show you that the threat of the Teals, you know, demonstrated to the Liberal Party because so many of those candidates federally and also I think most of these ones at the state level are great Liberal candidates. They're great, solid Liberal women and they're just not in the Liberal Party. And I think that shows you they've got a, a problem that they, you know, obviously haven't had time to address. I don't know if they have the motivation to address given some of the pre-selection decisions they have made, right? Well, on election night, we might go, one of them might win and one of them might come close. I don't really know which ones. I don't think we're going to see five of them getting elected, though. You know, I think it could be a small boost to an already large crossbench. And there will be, later this week, I'm, going to, I'm working on a blog post I've got a couple, actually. I've got a blog post about the number of women likely to get elected and blog post about the number of councillors likely to get elected. Um, and But also I'm doing one about the different hung parliament scenarios, kind of coming up with a few different scenarios of different numbers and what that says about the power and the position of different groups on the crossbench and different parties. Um, so stay tuned for that. Maybe Friday, maybe Monday. Not sure about that. I feel like we've kind of covered most of the hung parliament element there. And we've talked a bit about cashless gaming and uh, a couple of other issues, infrastructure spending. What other issues have been jumping out at you as, as big ones in this campaign? I've got two things on my list of things I've been watching. And I guess they're kind of uh, issues that I'm kind of interested in and I'm watching and issues that actually aren't in the election, and I'm interested in because they're kind of not in the election. I'm a big uh, kind of non-decision-making uh, fan, and, uh, you know, I also think, you know, political science has a kind of visibility bias, tends to focus on things that occur, not things that don't occur. So, I mean, I guess probably, um, I mean, most most kind of recently to uh, what we've been uh, talking about is the Liberal Party obviously had their launch this last weekend gone, and the big news story that's come out of that is this uh, future fund for children sort of thing. And I think this kind of, um, on the one hand, uh, talks to a kind of the cost of living issue that is um, really beneath the surface of the election. It gets touched on in a number of different policy areas, but none of the parties have really addressed cost of living in any meaningful way. And so it is kind of interesting that while cost of living is the single biggest issue facing the voters and the one they report is most important to them, none of the parties really have done much in cost of living. So we've got things around some rental policy stuff. We've got stuff around uh, the kind of toll relief that we've talked about. There's a little bit of money here and there that obviously talk to cost of living. For women, obviously, the Liberal Party are talking about um, uh, a trial of kind of free contraception and, and stuff like that. That's a minor kind of cost of living stuff and things like that. So the Liberal Party's launch for the, the Future Fund for Children, I think, is completely on brand for Dominic Perrottet, right? Um, it's also very kind of uh, liberal party policy, right? If you put money in, we'll match it. So we encourage people to invest. Obviously, it's going to attract the kind of normal criticisms that policies like that get, aka that only people with money can get the largesse. And so this is a kind of middle and upper class thing. There wasn't really any talk about how they're going to kind of cap that. So, you know, is this kind of more money for millionaires kind of narrative will emerge, I think. Um, but the, the, the one I think that probably is most important 
I think, for the hung parliament negotiations is how koalas have jumped into the election. You know, famously, I'm a, a Queenslander and I remember the, the damage that koalas did to the, the first Labor government after a long period of uh, National Party rule, right? The Goss administration, they wanted to, you know, they made this commitment to build a, a road, stuff like that, and they're going to plough straight through a, a koala habitat. And at the time, most people considered that that was the single biggest decision that lost them the election because obviously koalas are such kind of lovely, uh, lovely species, right? So we have both the Liberals and, and Labor talking about various koala strategies. Now, on paper, the Liberals are putting up more money, um, but notionally, Labor might be putting up more real estate that they're locking away. Um, although um, there are some ambiguities about what exactly they, they're promising to, to lock away. But clearly, koalas are cute. Everyone loves koalas. We're very concerned that they're going to become extinct. Um, but both of those policies are going to put the new government that's bringing them about at loggerheads with loggers, right? Because both of them are talking about taking lands that are currently available to logging and taking it off the, uh, the register. So, you know, 50-plus thousand uh, hectares uh, and certainly logging and the dispute over logging has been a big issue that you read about outside of the metro papers but not really much in in the the metro papers and i think the interesting thing of course is that labor particularly are very sensitized to this with regards to you know the kind of rural labor support logging has always been a problem that they've um uh, they've kind of had to deal with. Sometimes they've dealt it with more or less successfully uh, around the nation. And, of course, the Liberal Party through the National Party is going to be an issue for them. So they've made this big commitment. Um, depending on what the crossbench does look like, um, it's not clear, unlike the cashless gaming cards, that they'll be the same sort of uh, voice of people who are going to back them in to actually uh, live on that. Whereas you are definitely going to have very, very motivated rural communities who are going to talk about the job and income losses that could come to that. And although both, you know, sides of politics do like to talk to transitions around logging and, and the possibility of job creation around that, that discourse has never actually found favour with regional communities. It's just never kicked off and they just don't believe that that will occur, I think. It was a couple of years ago. It feels like an eternity ago, but koalas was a major source of conflict between the Liberals and the Nationals, right? For a minute there, John Barilara basically broke up the coalition until Berejiklian rightly pointed out that they would also have to lose all their ministries if they did that. They ended up losing an MP who is now running as a Liberal in Port Macquarie uh, against uh, the local mayor to bring back a theme of... Mayor's running in the election for the Nationals, um, one to watch as well. So that has had spillover effects. And I would imagine if the coalition is in a position to have to implement their policy agenda, they might uh, find some stresses in the relationship between the Liberals and the Nationals over this issue again, I would expect. Yeah, and it plays out both just in terms of that kind of uh, you know, politic kind of thing about jobs on the grounds and stuff like that, but also just at a broader level, um, you know, the, the progressive side of the Liberal Party, you know, uh, aka through the kind of King faction, has taken a great kind of stand on neutralising attacks around climate. 
But um, the Natural Resource Commission here in New South Wales, I think in December, released a bit of a report saying, well, if we actually keep managing forests the way we're managing them, they're going to become kind of net, net producers of carbon rather than carbon sinks, right? And so on on that level, the kind of broader level, which is is not the kind of um, time frame that we're thinking about with regards to the election, but the broader policy environment that, that whoever wins it's going to uh, encounter, that they've got to deal with the kind of forest issue anyway. Uh, and then for local communities, there's also kind of the water water issue as well. So I think that one's going to be kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if it's going to get a bit of a revisit um, until we see where the, the lay of the land is, but it's certainly going to be a big one, I think, coming from government. The other issues that I think probably that, you know, have been interesting have been a lot of the kind of defensive work that Dorinic Perrottet has taken, right, uh, around neutralising issues like uh, privatisation and stuff like that. And it shows you how the kind of economic landscape has changed in a way uh, and the sort of problem that the government's going to be going into moving forward around their capacity to raise money for new infrastructure projects if they're actually going to take privatisations off the table and of course when the privatization issue came up a lot of people kind of scrambled to say well what actually is left for privatization really and again it's those really really sensitive uh topics around the various water companies and not much that not much else right but perita has been quite adroit i think in taking issues off the agenda this election and you know most famously obviously was the Nazi uniform scandal that he kind of neutralised early on, which looked at the start of the election campaign like um, a question of extreme ill-discipline within the coalition, but it actually demonstrated incredible discipline because if you think about it, there are no photos from a boy's 21st birthday party. Like none of those photos have come out, right? Someone who was active in the Young Liberals at the time, there would have been a lot of people at that party who are involved in politics still to this day. That kind of thing I think is really interesting about taking that off. I, just one thing I just got to say, it was really fascinating. There was a news poll after that, right? And they sort of said, well, you know, he did a good job because 67% said it wouldn't affect the vote. 20% said they were less likely to vote for the, the coalition. But there were 8% of people who said seeing Dominic Perrottet in a Nazi uniform made me more likely to vote for the coalition, which, I mean, isn't a number actually uh, you really want to hear. Uh, I mean... As a member of as a member of the coalition, but also just in general, you know, who are these kind of interesting eight percent? Well, there are very right wing people in the community who maybe maybe it's just that I don't know. There are so I think I think you know that's kind of uh, an interesting one. Um, the other thing I think is probably worth mentioning, although it's not really a policy one per se, but it's related to policy, is that I you know Dominic Perrottet has been extremely able in cultivating this relationship with Paul Keating, right? And I think one of the things that sort of blunts the concerns of of some Labor voters about his government um, is that he has this very close and very positive relationship and all he's had to do is basically deal Keating into into the the planning process around Barangaroo, his kind of pet project of interest. And it does remind me of the Peter Beattie strategy of resuscitating Joe Bjorki-Peterson during the Beattie administration in Queensland uh, and the way that actually worked very powerfully for Beattie to kind of uh, bring Conservatives on board. Uh, into his vote. But I think overall, there are a number of issues that should be dogging the government. I care is one, obviously, the asset 
uh, transport asset holding entity. Um, those represent really major failings of the government's capacity to govern, which is the strongest base of its claim for re-election. And that they haven't come up, I you know, that much I think is interesting. Um, the, the transport asset holding entity one, I can understand that it's complex, it's about finance, it's difficult for people to grasp. But the IKEA one seems like, in the broader context of the national debate around, say, the robo debt scandal, like something that Labor could have got a lot more traction on uh, during the election campaign. But overall, my, my interest has been the way in which both of the two parties have run an extremely conservative campaign in many ways with Labor, you know, underbidding um, the coalition on many policy areas. Um, and that explains, I think, why both of them have really dodged the issue of the cost of living. They're both waiting for the Reserve Bank to resolve inflation, and they're largely sitting on their hands on that, I think. Peter, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about interest level in state politics, and particularly in New South Wales, and why maybe sometimes New South Wales politics doesn't get as much interest. And you were talking a little bit about the pragmatic history of New South Wales. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, one of the interesting things, of course, is that um, New South Wales doesn't have really the history of, uh, particularly in, in relatively modern history, and it's sort of talking about the 1950s onwards, so 1960s onwards, of really being a very radical jurisdiction. Both, uh, you know, coalition administrations and labour administrations have not been radicals. And certainly we don't see the sort of kind of, you know, contemporary labour uh, uh, opposition uh, into government that we see in in Victoria, right, where they're introducing a lot of very interesting policy ideas and a bit more from the the radical end. And Elaine Thompson, a political scientist uh, of long standing, who did a lot of kind of comparative work around Australian jurisdictions, um, pointed out, I think, a, a still very relevant fact, and, and that is that one of the kind of defining features of New South Wales politics is its pragmatism in its policy landscape. And I think to some extent, just the the pragmatism that we've seen in this election, Labor hasn't been outbidding the coalition, knowing that it's going into a, a resource-constrained environment if it comes into office and things like that, um, that we're kind of uh, arguing over very, very modest, if you think about it, policy alternatives, uh, you know, which are mostly about you know, spending a little bit of money. There's no radical new models that are, are emerging in this way. There's no, um, you know, innovative or new uh, agencies that are proposed to be established, nothing like that's really going on. I think it does reflect that um, that New South Wales is a very pragmatic jurisdiction politically. And I think it also explains why the vast majority of people find the politics less than exciting and, you know, engage a little bit less than you might see in other jurisdictions. Uh, and I think the, the comparative jurisdiction would obviously be Victoria, which, um, you know, uh, always has a feel of a more political kind of culture down there. Well, we always love a bit of uh, long-term historical comparisons about the trends that we mostly don't notice when we're zoomed in on the day-to-day, -day, so very glad to have that. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Peter, for joining me. Thank you. Great to be here. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>